How's everyone doing tonight? Okay, cool. How's everyone doing tonight? All right, all right, a little better, a little better. <laughs> it's good to see you guys. I'm excited to worship God uh, alongside you, and I'm excited to study God's Word and to see what He has to teach us. And uh, for those of you I haven't met yet, my name is Zach, and uh, I'm just super, super stoked to learn from God tonight. I don't know about you, but like, God's pretty cool. Yeah? Yeah? He's all right. Okay, cool. Um, We're starting a new series tonight, starting a new series called Beloved and Corrupt. We're going to be going through the entire book of Malachi. Uh, How many of you have ever read Malachi? couple, maybe. Yeah, all right. A few of you have read Malachi. Malachi is a heavy book, all right? It's very heavy, um, and it's going to be really good. So turn with me to Malachi chapter 1. Malachi is the last book in the Old Testament, to give you guys a little perspective of where we are at. If you don't have a Bible, raise your hand, and we'll get one to you. Bibles are good things to have in church, and if you don't own a Bible, you can keep that Bible. That is yours. It is all yours. Got a few over here, Keith. Zach, there you go. We're going to be in Malachi chapter 1. Malachi chapter 1. We're going to start at verse 2. Malachi chapter 1, verse 2. We're going to have it up here for you as well to follow along. We're going to read the first five verses, but we're going to be going through the entire chapter of chapter one tonight. Uh, Malachi is four chapters long, so it's going to be a four-week series, and we're going to go chapter one, chapter two, chapter three, chapter four, and it's going to be fun, but we're going to do the first five verses right now, and then we will dive right in. Malachi chapter one, verse two, I have loved you, says the Lord, yet you say, in what way have you loved us? Was not Esau Jacob's brother, says the Lord? Yet Jacob I have loved, but Esau I have hated, and laid waste to his mountains and his heritage. For the jackals of the wilderness, even though Edom has said, We have been impoverished, but we will return and build it to the desolate places. Thus says the Lord of hosts, They may build, but I will throw down. They shall be called the territory of wickedness, and the people against whom the Lord will have indignation over Your eyes shall see, and you shall say, the Lord is magnified beyond the border of Israel. This is God's word. Let's pray. Jesus, we are extremely grateful for who you are, the sacrifice that you have given us. Lord, we are grateful for the life that you have to offer us. Lord, I pray that we would lay hold of that life tonight. Lord, that through your word, we would learn more about your character and fall deeper in love with who you are. I pray that you'd create unity between uh, you and us tonight via your Holy Spirit. God, I pray that whatever words are spoken, God, would be of you and only of you. Yeah, Lord, just cause us to fall more in love with you tonight. In Jesus' holy name we pray. Amen. To give you guys just a little bit of context before we dive into the entire passage, um, for those of you who don't know what the book of Malachi is, is a pro- Malachi was a prophet. And uh, this was uh, written somewhere between 430 B.C. and 500 B.C., around that time, around the time of Nehemiah. Some of you may know who Nehemiah is. It was around the rebuilding of the Temple of Jerusalem. You see, Israel was in captivity for uh, hundreds of years. They they were in captivity. Uh, They were oppressed by different nations. And finally, God led them out of oppression, allowed them to go into the city, which they called home. And the temple was rebuilt. The city was rebuilt. The walls were rebuilt 
were rebuilt. And finally, Israel is starting to become a nation again. They're starting to have autonomy. They're no longer in captivity anymore. Um, Israel had gotten in a trend of getting captive, uh, being uh, in captivity from someone, getting free, then back in captivity, then free, then back in captivity, then free. Israel has a trend of getting enslaved to certain nations. This is usually caused by them kind of picking the wrong friends, so to speak, and they usually become oppressed. And so the book of Malachi, it's the last book written to Israel before God goes silent. God will go silent for 400 and something years. God will go completely silent. He's not going to speak through any prophets. He's not going to speak through any form of scripture. God will be totally silent for 400 years, and then Jesus comes. So this is the last thing that God had to say to Israel before Jesus came. So it's super important for us to learn, right? It's super important for us to kind of get this grasp of God's character and what he says to his people before he decides to remove his voice. Not his presence, not remove his presence, remove his voice. And so he is giving this to them. And we need to understand what a prophet is. We need to understand, and when I say prophet, I don't mean the person of a prophet, but I mean in scripture. There's prophets, right? Jeremiah, right? Jeremiah, there is Malachi, right? There's, there's, there's tons of different types of prophets. Isaiah is a prophet, okay? There's, there's, there's different prophets, and, and what prophets are is God speaking directly to man. We have many different types of books. So there's narrative books where God speaks through stories and narratives. This is the book of Genesis, right? This is the book of Exodus, yeah? This is the book of Acts, right? This is the Gospels where God speaks through stories, where God speaks through characters, First and Second Samuel, the life of David, right? God speaks through stories and narratives and different people. So God speaks in that way. And then there's, there's man speaking to God right? This is the Psalms, right? This is, this is man pouring their heart out to the Lord and this union between man and God, right? So there's some books in the Bible where it is man speaking directly to God. There's other books in the Bible, like the epistles, which are man speaking to man about God, right? So, so this is Paul when he's telling other people about God, right? And so, so there's different forms of scripture, and what a prophet is in Malachi, if, if man's diary to God is Psalms, then God's diary to man is prophets, right? So when, when, when we're looking at Malachi, I really want you to think that this is, this is God's letter to us. This is him speaking directly from his heart. And when you look at any prophets, you'll kind of notice that God kind of, he's a little moody, right? He's, he's kind of seems at certain points like a teenage girl desperate for attention, right? Kind of just seeing like, I haven't texted back in 10 minutes. What's wrong? Right? It kind of, it kind of seems like God has that type of mentality. And some of the prophets, we're going to unpack that and see what that, why it, it kind of looks like that. God's like spilling his heart out. And so we're going to be learning about these things in the book of Malachi. And the first thing he has to say in this book, the first thing that he has to say is, I have loved you. I have loved you. This is a very interesting thing for God to say before he, he lays out all the things that are wrong with Israel. He wants to remind them and lay a foundation for everything he is about to say. He says, I have loved you. 
And in the original translation, guys, it doesn't just mean I used to love you, right? It's like, man, I loved you once, right? I have loved you. In, in direct translation means I have loved you in the past, I love you currently, and I will always love you in the future. Where God's love is ever present, it is never ceasing. God is saying to Israel, I love you. There's nothing you can do that will escape my love. There's nothing that you will do that will escape you from my love. And there's nothing you have done in the past that keeps you from my love. God is saying, I love you past, present, and future. It never changes. I never change. I'm God. And so this is very important for us to understand as we go through the book of Malachi. Because God's going to lay out some faults that Malachi has, but it's all upon the foundation of I genuinely, truly, in every sense of the word, love you. I love you. And, and, and guys, if we receive, if God gives us correction and we don't have a proper understanding that he loves us enough that he would die for us on a cross, if we don't understand this love that he has for us, when God tries to correct you, you're not going to receive it well right? There's been many people who have tried to correct me in the past, and I know they have no genuine love for me at all. I don't receive that correction well, but if there's correction that comes from someone I genuinely care about, and I know loves me, and is out from my best interest, I'm willing to receive that, right? I'm willing to receive that correction if it's out of love. And so guys, if, if, if there's some times where I'm saying something that kind of hurts you, like resonates, and you're like, I don't like that, right? I'm offended by that. Well, I'm not going to offend you with anything besides the word of God. I promise you that, okay? I'm going to offend you with the word of God. I will, right? Guaranteed. Okay, that's going to happen, especially in a book like the prophets. But we have to make sure that our offense is internalized, and we, and we really look at ourselves, and we're like, God, you love me. You love me. You love me. And if you're asking me to change in this manner, it's out of love, right? Not out of anything wrong with you. Does that make sense? God's not saying, if you want me to love you, you must do A, B, and C. He's saying, I have loved you. I always will love you. I love you currently. I love you. Therefore, obey me. As Jesus would say, if you love me, you will keep my commandments, right? So what is Israel's response then? Because this is sometimes the outpour of our heart. When we look at verse 2, when we look at verse 2, when God says, I have loved you, says the Lord, yet you say, in what way have you loved us? In what way have you loved us? You see, how have you loved us is their response, right? How have you loved us? How have you loved us? God's saying, I love you. Israel says, How? How? How have you loved us? Name one time. How have you loved us? You see, we sing this. We know that song, right? How he loves us. Oh, how he loves us. Oh, how he loves us. Yes? You guys know that song? Yeah? <laughs> it's the most overdone song in the entire church, but I still love it. I think it's awesome. I love that song because I love, I love how God loves me. I love it. And I sing it often, and, and, and I think about it often, how God loves me, and I meditate on it, and I know he tells me he loves me, but if I were to be honest in my own heart, there are certain points in time where I want God to say, how? Because the circumstances in my life don't, I, if I love someone, I wouldn't do this to them, 
I wouldn't allow them to go through this if I truly loved them. You know, it is an arrogant question that Israel poses to God. How have you loved us? It is a very arrogant question, but it's an honest one. It is a question out of arrogance and pride, but it is at least an honest question. And guys, during this series, we're going to be constantly reminding ourselves And God's going to be constantly reminding us of how much he loves us. But we also need to allow God, allow God to expose our hearts. Listen, there are some uncomfortable questions you have for God. And how is he supposed to respond to them if you don't ask them? Right? There's some uncomfortable questions you have for God. There's some, there's some bitterness. There's some bitter questions that you may have for God. How is he supposed to deal with them? And how are you supposed to work on those questions together if you're too scared to actually ask them? Because we think that it, it, it forsakes some sort of piety, right? There's some sort of holiness that we have to live up to. And if you're holy, you never question God. If I'm a holy person, I will never ask questions. If I'm a holy person, I will, I will, without any doubts, go forward. And even if I doubt the plans that God is having, and even if I don't agree with what he's doing, I, I'm not even going to address that. I'm just going to go forward. And here's the problem with that. If you allow your doubts, and you push them down, and you allow them to stay there, and you don't address the questions that you genuinely have, they're going to turn into faithlessness. They're going to turn into bitterness towards God. And so, yes, it's an arrogant question that Israel has for God. How have you loved us? It's an arrogant question, but it's an honest one. Let's be honest with God first and then allow him to deal with our pride, right? Let's be honest with God and then allow him to deal with these things. This series, guys, if it's about anything, I want you guys to understand this. The book of Malachi is all about worship, All of it. The entire book of Malachi is how we worship God, how we ought to worship God, how he wants us to worship him. And in order to have a worshipful heart, we need to have an honest one. Because if we're singing the songs and we're praising God or we're serving in the back or we're doing whatever, we're helping with the kids' ministry, we're making meals, we're teaching someone, we're doing some sort of thing with InterVarsity, whatever it may be, if we're doing all of these things and we're not honest with ourselves, you're going to burn out. You're going to burn out. If you're doing all of these things, and it's not out of the proper heart, eventually you're going to grow bitter towards the other people around you, and you're going to grow bitter towards God. And that's not what God wants, right? God wants you to have a ministry that lasts. He wants you to have a faith that lasts and is continually going, right? He wants that for you. And the book of Malachi addresses that. And so they ask this question, how have you loved us? How have you loved us? And God responds this way. Was not Esau Jacob's brother, says the Lord? Yet Jacob I have loved, but Esau I have hated. Now, for those of you who don't know who Jacob and Esau is, he's referring to Genesis chapter 25 through chapter 36. Um, there was Abraham, right? Abraham is the father of faith. He is the first one. God said, I'm making covenant with you. And through your descendants will be an entire nation that will bring me glory. And the Messiah will then be through your seed, your nation, right? So there was Abraham. Then after Abraham was Isaac. 
And then Isaac and his wife gave birth to two twins, Esau and Jacob. Esau being the older twin, Jacob being the younger one. And through a series of events, God was continually faithful to Jacob and not Esau. It's clear in scripture. God favored Jacob. He didn't favor Esau. And God says right here, Jacob I have loved, Esau I have hated. Whoa, and I see some of the looks on your faces right now. I see, I see some, some of you, the people that are paying attention at least. I see, I see some of your faces where you don't associate, and it doesn't preach usually, God and hate, right? Yeah, get used to the prophets, right? Get used to the intensity of the prophets. We don't usually put this word God and this word hate next to each other because it offends people, right? The fact that God would hate anybody is absurd, right? Because God is love, yes? God is love. Now you may be saying to yourself, that sounds rather harsh. God hating Esau and playing favorites for Jacob? Really? Because it was out of Jacob that the nation of Israel would go forth. You see, there was Abraham, then there was Isaac, right? Abraham's, Abraham's job was easy. He only had one son, that was Isaac. But Isaac, man, he ended up having twins, And the nation could only come from one person, right? And so through Jacob was the nation of Israel. And through Esau was the nation of Edom, the one who he talks about right here. How every time Edom tried to make a name for themselves, God just smacked them down. And that seems harsh, right? That seems harsh. It seems like God was playing favorites because he was. That's weird, right? It's weird. But if you look at the direct translation, and it, it doesn't help that much, but to soften the blow that you may be feeling, like God and hate, what? It really translates into God accepted Jacob and he declined Esau. God accepted Jacob and he declined Esau. Now, first of all, Jacob wanting the, wanted the blessings in the first place. Esau never really wanted it. Just, just to make it clear, just to make it kind of clear in scripture, Esau kind of gives his birthright away, right? He kind of really shows this apathetic attitude towards God's blessings. He really didn't want it in the first place, right? And Jacob did whatever he could to get that blessing. He actually ended up disguising himself as his brother, right? To get the blessings from his father, right? And he like, cause Esau was like this manly, like buff dude who just hunted deer and put it on his back and then just spoke. He probably had a beard that was just, ah, oh, so good. Right. <laughs> and then to put things into perspective, Jacob was the one who like set the table, right? Like made doilies, you know, and placemats for the meal that Esau killed. Right. That's kind of, that was like Jacob and Esau. That was, that was kind of how it was. Now uh, Esau had later on, he had kind of just disregarded his birthright and Jacob, he actually disguised himself as his hairy, like massive, like bearded brother by putting goat skin on him. Right. Because his father was like super blind at the time. Right. And, And so his father like felt him. Oh, hairy Esau. Right. Blessing. Bam. Jacob's like, Bam, right? Blessing. He stole it. He stole it. So first of all, Jacob wanted the blessings more than Esau. Secondly, though, the question, we really think about this, guys. We really think about this. We ask ourselves, and this, is, this passage in scripture divides churches. You know that? 
Entire denominations are divided over this one passage. How God chose Jacob and he didn't choose Esau. And we get really hung up on like, whoa, wait, 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 does God choose others? And I thought if anyone wanted to come to God, they can come to God. And I thought like, whoa, whoa, wait, did God predestine some? And did God not want others? Like, does he send others to hell? And does he send some to heaven? That seems like a cruel God who's fickle and he just plays favorites. And that seems like a cruel God to me. And now, listen to this. The question that everyone is asking is, why didn't God choose Esau? Why did he not choose Esau over Jacob? That's what people keep asking. Like, what was it about Jacob? What was it about Esau that made God choose them? What was it about them? What did they do to receive it? That blessing. That's the wrong question to ask. The question is, why would God choose anyone in the first place? They're both sinners. Neither of them deserve him. Neither of them deserve God. Neither of them deserve the blessings that he had to offer. So the question isn't, why, wait, why does God choose him and not him? It's, why would God choose anyone in the first place? God being so holy, so spotless, why, why would he even associate with sinners like us? Guys, I am wicked. I am so wicked. In me and my flesh dwells no good thing. And, 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 and don't let the pulpit fool you. I, I, I wrestle with God in sin and temptation. Everyone does. And so the fact that a holy God would have fellowship with me, is it, that's the mind-blowing thing about this. That he would have fellowship with anyone. And, and, and here, here's, here's how God responds. When, when Israel says, God, how have you loved us? How have you loved us? What was it about us that would make you love us? And, and I think a lot of the times when we think of love, we think that there has to be a reason behind it. Because the love that we extend to one another is very conditional, is it not? We love someone for specific reasons, right? We like being around them. We think that they're this. We think that they're that. They do this for us. And so we always want conditions, Right? Well, there's one condition. God, why do you love us? Why do you love us? How do you love us? What, the, what, it, what is up with that? And I think God responds perfectly in Deuteronomy chapter 7. It's going to be up here. Deuteronomy chapter 7, verse 6. It says this. For you are a holy people to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for himself, a special treasure above all the peoples on the face of the earth. Listen to this, guys. Listen to this in verse 7. The Lord did not set his love on you, nor choose you because you were more in number than any other people. For you were last and least of all peoples, but, not, but because the Lord loves you. And because he would keep an oath which he swore to your fathers, the Lord has brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of bondage from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. Listen, listen, guys. You want a reason why God loves you? God says this, I love you because I love you. I love you because I love you. You are beloved because you're my beloved. You are my beloved, though you are corrupt. This should be a freeing fact for you. That God does not love you based on 
any attribute of your personality or any sins that you have or have not committed. He loves you because he chose you. And he chose you because he loves you. And so when we ask this question, God, how have you loved us? He says, how? I chose you. I, a holy God, have chosen to have fellowship with you. I, who have all right to totally destroy you, have chosen to love you and build you up and free you from your sin and your bondage. I chose you. I chose you. I chose you, God says. How have you loved us? God says, I want you. Stop looking for a reason. Stop looking for a reason for God to love you. He just does. And he loves every part of you. He loves every single part of who you are and your personality. And he chose that. And he wants to bring out the best in that. And so when we look at a passage like Malachi, when we look at the intensity of it, he says, I love you because I love you. He chose you because he wants you. He chose you because he wants you. That, that should lift a burden off of your shoulders. It says in Romans 5, 8, it says, but God demonstrates his own love in us that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. So, so, so that should be mind-blowing that Christ, whether you chose him or not, died for you, right? That while you were still sinners, Christ died for you. So, so guys, we need to get out of this mentality that God loves us because we have done anything specific or that he can remove his love because we've done something, Right? Never think that you're doing something or your lack of doing something will separate you from the love that God has for you because it was unconditional in the first place. And that's not changing. That's not changing. We need to remind ourselves of this. God's love never changes for you. And he loves you so much that it says that before the foundations of the world, he chose you. This means this, guys. It means that before you were even a thought in your mother and father's heads, God knew you in every single little detail. He had counted and planned out every single hair on your head before the world was even created. Isn't that great? Isn't that just amazing that God would love you so much? And some of you are thinking, well, yeah, I know this. But we need to know this before we get into verse 6 of Malachi. Because God's going to lay out a few things. The God that would demonstrate so much love for you that he would die for you. Lay down his life for you. He says this in verse 6. As a son honors his father and a servant his master, if then I am a father, where is my honor? If I am a master, where is my reverence? Says the Lord of hosts. To you priests who despise my name, yet you say, in what way have we despised your name? 
Listen, as we receive God and we receive the gospel that he has to give us and we soak in this awesome love and we have this Holy Spirit moment where we finally realize that God loves us and we read our Bibles and we go to Bible studies and we get in fellowship and we go to church, we start to experience God in different ways. We start to get used to him and we start to call him certain names, right? Like Father, like Master, like Lord and Savior. We start to develop this conversation and this relationship with God where we call him father, we call him master, we call him Lord, savior, king. We call him these things because that's what he is. And that's what he asks to be called. But God is saying to Israel, you call me these things, but you don't treat me as such. You call me father, you don't treat me as a father. You call me master, but you don't treat me like a master. You see, I called you beloved, and I treat you as beloved, but you call me master, and you don't do a thing I tell you to do. So we're learning. So God is now exposing this inequality in relationship between us and him. He's exposing it in front of us. And now, once again, Israel says, whoa, 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 whoa. God's saying, you have despised my name. And they're like, in what way have we despised your name? Right? Once again, an arrogant question. God's saying, you don't treat me like a father. You don't treat me like a master. You don't treat me like a king. And our hearts would also say, God, of course I do. I treat you just as well as I treat my own dad. And so they say, how? How have we despised your name? And this is what God says to Israel in verse 7. He says this, You offer defiled food on my altar, but say, in what way have we defiled you? By saying, the the table of the Lord is contemptible. And when you offer the blind as a sacrifice, is that not evil? When you offer the lame and sick, is that not evil? Offer that to your governor. Would he be pleased with you? Would he accept you favorably? says the Lord of hosts. So here's what's, here's what's happening, guys. Here's what Israel is doing. Israel is going about their sacrifices, right? They're making sacrifices in the temple. They're offering things to Jesus. They're, they're, they're offering things to God, right? They're offering all of these things. And so when God's saying, you don't treat me like a God, you don't treat me like God, you don't treat me like a father, you don't treat me like a master, they're like, what do you mean? Like, we go to church every Sunday. Wait, wait what? Like, we give you our time, right? We give you sacrifices. We, we offer these things to you. But here's what Israel was doing. See, God says, I want the first fruits of everything you have. I want the first fruits. I want the best of what you have. And Israel, instead of bringing like their prized sheep to the altar, their prized goat, and, and giving that up to the Lord as a sign of trust and a sign of reverence, Luckily, we don't have to do that now. We don't have to like bring goats and stuff anymore. Jesus is our final sacrifice. But the metaphor still works here, okay? So, so what, what Israel was doing is they were bringing goats and they were bringing sheep and they were bringing these offerings. They were bringing fruit and they were bringing the first fruits of their, their uh, harvest and their farms and they were bringing all these things to the Lord. However, they were bringing like the blind goat or the, lo- the goat that was born with like a bad leg. Or they were bringing fruit, but they were bringing, like, figs. Like, nobody likes figs, right? (laughs) 
You know what I mean? Like God's like, wait, why not the pineapple? You know, they're like, no, here's the figs. We want the pineapple. Does that make sense? So, so what they were doing is, yes, they were bringing sacrifices. They were giving to God, but God asked for their best and they were giving him their dirty leftovers. They were saying, let us take what we want first and we'll give God whatever's left. We'll give God whatever's left. And when God says, try giving that to your governor and see if he accepts it, meaning this, if you gave your boss and your job the same amount of effort and time that you gave God, would you still have a job? If you gave God, if you gave your school work, the same amount of devotion that you give God in your personal devotions, what would your grades look like? If you gave God, if you gave your friends the amount of time that you gave God, would you still have friends? If you gave God, or if you gave your wife, maybe, for those of you who are married in here, if you gave your wife the same amount of time or the same amount of love, the same amount of affection that you gave God, how would your marriage be? And so, so Israel's like, wait, God, of course we love you, right? Of course we respect you. And God's saying, really? If you treated others the way you treated me, nobody would like you. Nobody. If you gave your governor the offerings that you gave me, he'd be like, you wouldn't have a job anymore. If you, if you gave your boss the amount of devotion that you gave God, you probably, or I probably, wouldn't have a job. And I work at a church. <laughs> listen, listen, this is convicting. This is, I work at a church but I don't give God as much devotion as I give the church. I, I don't, right? I don't give God the same amount of devotion that I give my friends. I don't. And listen, I'm not, say, I'm not saying, right, like if you hang out with your friends like four to five hours in a day, I'm not saying you need to be on your knees four to five hours a day. I'm not saying that now you need to like form a new form of legalism, right? And like keeping track of the time that you spent, right? But God is simply saying, listen, you don't, you say that you love me, but you don't, right? And and as I I warned you guys in the beginning, right? It's going to get offensive. It's going to get heavy, but there's purpose behind this and there's, there's reason behind this and there's hope in this, right? Because I could already, already tell some of you are getting uncomfortable. <laughs> That's good. Don't back off, lean into it, give into it. You see, listen, Israel was totally aware of this sin. Uh, they actually, they weren't totally aware of this sin. That's, that's the problem with this type of sin, guys. It's called sin of omission, Sin of, there's sin, sin of commission and there's sin of omission. Sin of commission is I'm going to go out of my way and I'm going to sin in this way. I'm going to lie. I'm going to steal. I'm going to cheat. I'm going to do this. Sin of omission is not doing what you ought to do. 
right? So Eve, Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden, Eve's sin was a sin of commission. I'm going to disobey God now. Adam's sin was a sin of omission, where he, knowing full well what his wife was doing, didn't stick up for her, didn't do anything to stop the serpent, right? So there's sin of commission, there's sin of omission, right? And sin of omission is much harder to spot because Israel, in their heads, they're like, uh, no, we're going to church. Oh, no, we're serving in the kids' ministry. Oh, no, we're doing all of these things. We're, we're engaged in ministry. We're engaged with people. But, but what they weren't aware of is that they were just doing business as usual, Christianity. Business as usual. So the question is, is church becoming... Is it just church as usual? Oh yeah, go to church every Sunday. Is it just reading your Bible as usual? Oh yeah, I do my morning devotions and sometimes I do a devotion at night. Is doing ministry just doing ministry as usual for us? Oh yeah, I mean, I volunteer on Sundays. I do kids ministry and like once a month I I cook meals. Is there intentionality behind it? Is there, is there, I am worshiping God with this behind that when you're opening your Bible, is it just, this is what I do in the morning? Or when you open your Bibles, is it like time to enjoy Jesus? When you're going to church, is it just, well, yeah, all my friends go, or is it, no, it is time to worship Jesus. I'm so excited. I can't wait to love him more. When you're doing ministry, is it, yeah, that's just what I do. Or is it, this is how I worship, right? Because here's the thing, guys. God is not a God of preservation. He's a God of growth. God is not a God of preserving your schedule and preserving your homeostasis, right? Where you feel comfortable. God's not a God. He he isn't about that. And so I, I think a lot of the times in America, right, we feel like it is our job as Christians to preserve our nation, or to preserve the morality, or to preserve things, right? To hold to what was. God's not a God of preservation. He's a God of growth. So we need to stop saying, I need to preserve my schedule. I need to preserve my Christianity. I need to preserve my ministry. It's not about that. It's about how do I grow? How do I help others grow? It's not about how do I keep my faith intact and how do I not mess up? It's how am I growing with the Lord? How how am I helping the people around me experience growth in the Lord? This is how we need to look at spirituality, not as preserving things, but as growing things and cultivating things. This will change the way we worship God. Because God says here in verse 12 of Malachi, He says here, but you profane it in that you say the table of the Lord is defiled and its fruit, its food is contemptible. You also say, oh, what a weariness. And you sneer at it, says the Lord of hosts. And you bring the stolen, the lame and the sick. Thus you bring an offering. Should I accept that from your hand, says the Lord? And so, so God's saying this, he's saying, you know, God's telling them all these things. And I love what it says in verse 13 and God said, and you sneer at it. So here, here's, here, how many of you have teenage kids? How many of you have teenage kids in here? How many of you have had teenage kids in here? How many of you work with teenagers at all? How many of you are teenagers in here? There you go. That's, that's the majority. Okay, we know who we're talking to now. Okay, 
Listen, every, every person who's either worked with youth or is a parent in some regards knows the right? Right? Where you're trying to tell them something, some of you do this still. Grow up. But yeah, okay. Yeah, I said it. Grow up. Stop doing that. Some of you, when your parents are trying to tell you something, it's, again. Right? This is what Israel's doing to God. Yeah, we know you want attention. Right? Yeah, obey you, obey you, give you worship, whatever, blah, blah, blah. I've heard this. And it's not necessarily out of disrespect, but it's out of, I know, I know already, because we know everything, right? We know already. We understand already. God doesn't have to tell us anything. We know, right? I know how to live my life. God does stop, Pastor Zach, stop. Just, I know, okay? I know I need to worship better. And, and what God's saying, I'm t- God's saying, and now I'm telling you this, and you're just sneering at me, right? And you're just sneering. You're just rolling your eyes and saying, yeah, I know, I know. Stop talking. And this is how I approach God all the time, where he's, he's trying to tell me something, whether it be through a sermon, he's trying to tell me something in the word of God. And, and, and just because I think I know everything already, I roll my eyes and I ignore it. God's saying, do you know what? Why give me anything at all? Why do any type of ministry? Why come to church? You clearly don't want to, right? You clearly don't want to. Israel rolls their eyes and say, oh, God's being difficult again. He's being needy again, right? My mom wants me to call her again, right? It says right here, But curse be the deceiver who has in his flock a male and who takes a vow but sacrifices to the Lord what is blemished. For I am a great king, says the Lord of hosts, and my name is to be feared among the nations. God's saying this, guys, and it says this in Ecclesiastes chapter 7, I believe. Don't make a promise to God and not keep it. It's a big deal. So, so God's saying, you've promised me all of these things, but you're not doing it. And, and God's saying, cursed be that person who does that. I am a king. I'm a king. Do, do you understand that I hold the entire universe in the span of my hand? Do you understand that I created all the stars in the sky? Do you understand that I hold every single breath you take with your lungs in my hands? And if I were to cease my love towards you, you would also cease existing. God's saying, do you understand that? I'm a holy God. And you make promises to me and do the exact opposite. Now, this doesn't stop God's love towards us, but it should change our perspective towards him. And I want to go... Now, and start to be beginning to close now with what worship really is. What praise really is. Because when I read something like this, as I mentioned before, it sometimes seems like God is kind of moody, right? And kind of like, God, come on. You're not appreciative of what I give you, right? Where God seems, he seems very attention hungry, Right? And I think 
guys, we have this kind of false sense of what worship is, right? This false sense of what it means to praise and what it means to worship. You see, because we think that to praise something and to worship something is to pay it compliments. To pay it compliments, to tell God that he's awesome, right? To tell God that he's good. Oh God, I, I don't know what I would do without you. I don't know where I would be without you, God. Saying things, oh, I love you, God. Oh, like, I, I, just, I just love you. And we, and we sing these worship songs and, and, and we can be mistaken and think that worship is compliments. Worshiping does not equal complimenting. It, it, it was C.S. Lewis who said, before he became a Christian, C.S. Lewis, everyone know who C.S. Lewis C.S. Lewis, a famous uh, Christian philosopher, author, wrote the Chronicles of Narnia and all different types of book, really a foundational um, for, for Christians everywhere, just wrote awesome stuff. And, and C.S. Lewis, he said, before he became a Christian, he was a heavy, heavy, heavy agnostic, even towards the bending of atheism. And, and, and before he became a Christian, he saw God as kind of this, what he described as a, a needy old widow, right? Where he said, just wanting, uh, wanting just constant compliments, right? Always, always doing something to be noticed because he feels like he's being forgotten, right? And, and, and C.S. Lewis, he said this, this was his perspective of God, that kind of just this needy, a uh, person who just always wanted compliments and always wanted you to pay him reverence because he felt lonely. And when we read the prophets, it's really easy for us to kind of slip into that mentality that God is super needy and that worshiping him is paying God compliments because he's getting lonely, right? It's not quite that way. You see, you praise that which you enjoy, Right? Don't you? You praise that which you enjoy. I, I praise my mother's cooking, right? Always, because I enjoy it, yes? I praise good authors and good books. I just praised C.S. Lewis, right? Because I enjoy the things he does, yes? So you praise that which you enjoy. If you enjoy another human being's presence, you usually want to tell people you do so right? If you enjoy something, you worship it. You, you give it what it's worth, really. Don't, don't make that word a loaded thing. You praise that which you enjoy, and that goes with anything, right? There's some people that just really enjoy watching sports, right? And you know those people that just don't stop talking about it, right? You know those people, right? So we praise that which gives us pleasure. We give it honor. We put it in a position that we believe it's worth. We praise what we enjoy. I praise good authors that I like. I praise good TV shows that I like because I enjoy them, right? I cannot tell you how many people told me to watch Breaking Bad, right? You know, like those people like, you have to watch this show, right? You get those people, just kind of this crazy thing in their eyes. You have to watch it, right? It is the best show on Netflix. Doubt it. Every show apparently is the best show on Netflix, right? But, but people praise that which they enjoy and love, right? And so the root, the root of praise stems from enjoyment. It's not paying, it's not this obligation to pay compliments, and so the root of Israel's sin was not that they weren't giving God enough. Does that make sense? 
Yes, that's what God was saying, but here's what God means. The root of Israel's sin, the root of our sin, is not that we don't give God enough, right? Because there's some people, there's some people that do tons for God, and there's some people that do the little things that they can into whatever capacity they can, and just because you put more hours into volunteering at the church, does that mean God loves you more? No, absolutely not, right? So, so it's, it's not, God's not asking for more. He's not. He's asking that you would enjoy him. Worship, reverence, service stems from an enjoyment of God. An enjoyment of God. In Psalm 34, love this psalm. In Psalm 34, it says, I will bless the Lord at all times. His praise shall continually be in my mouth. My soul shall make its boast in the Lord. The humble shall hear of it and be glad. Oh, magnify the Lord with me and let us exalt his name together. I sought the Lord and he heard me and delivered me from all my fears. They looked to him and were radiant and their faces were not ashamed. This poor man, and David speaking of himself, he's saying this poor man cried out and the Lord heard him and saved him from all of his troubles. You can experience this joy that David has when he's writing this psalm, can you not? Oh, magnify the Lord with me together. Let us praise his name. This man right here was in such despair and he cried out to the Lord and he saved me. And there's this enjoyment of God in this psalm. And David was known as a man after God's own heart. God was not pleased with anyone more than he was pleased with David. And this is because David expressed this enjoyment of God. And that is the question I want to leave you all with. I don't, I'm not interested in how much ministry you do. I'm not interested in how much you volunteer. I'm not interested in your devotion life and how many books of the Bible you've read. I'm not interested in your knowledge. Do you enjoy God? Do you enjoy him? Because you better believe Israel had a vast knowledge of God and his laws and everything he wanted. But since Israel refused to just enjoy God, their worship suffered. And God was neglected. It's simple. It's simple. Enjoy God. And some of you may be asking this question, well, how do I enjoy God? How could I enjoy him, Zach? It sounds great to enjoy him, but what are the steps necessary to enjoy him? It's simple. Enjoyment stems from growth. Enjoyment stems from growth. And so here's the question I'll ask you. When was the last time you simply went on an adventure? When's the last time you allowed yourself to get out of the monotony of life and allow God to take you on an adventure? Where, where you allowed God to take you somewhere you've never been before. And I don't just mean physically go on an adventure. I mean a stage in life that you're afraid to go to, but you know God has called you to. I mean, a person that you've been wanting to talk to and you know, God, if you, you know, if you talk to them, when the, this whole thing would start rolling and God would make a ministry out of it. If you stepped out in faith to be a part of a certain ministry, 
When was the last time you allowed God to take you on an adventure? Some of you don't enjoy God at all. Some of you, church is business as usual because you're business as usual. Some of you think God is boring because you're boring. (laughs) When was the last time you allowed an adventure to occur? Where you put yourself out there? Where you took a leap of faith? When was the last time you asked God to do something just so huge that only he could do it? And then, not knowing whether it was going to pan out or not, you just went for it. Because you know it's something good. When's the last time you took a risk? When's the last time you allowed yourself to preach the gospel, even if you don't know anything? You see, it's out of this lifestyle, guys, where God will start to make you grow and you'll start to enjoy him. You start to enjoy him. We enjoy new things. And the great thing about God is that we will never stop discovering who he is. Guys, our hearts are eternal, as it says in Ecclesiastes. Our hearts are eternal. Therefore, therefore, our hearts get bored easy with the same thing over and over and over and over and over again. Our hearts get profoundly bored because they are eternal. They are meant to experience constant newness. And we have gotten so caught up in the monotony of life that we have grown bored with God and we have not given him the worship he deserves because we are unwilling to change. We are unwilling to take steps in faith. We are unwilling to do something new. When God says, enjoy me, enjoy me. uh, When we were praying outside before service and we were praying and I remembered this one poem that I had read a while ago by actually uh, Mother Teresa. She, uh, she wrote this poem that really, really resonated with me when I was around 18. 18, 19, I think I had just turned 19. And it actually caused a lot of changes in my life. It caused me to do something that I'd never done before and that I didn't want to do because I was used to my schedule. And uh, yeah, this poem, it reads this. It says, What a burden I thought I was to carry. A crucifix, as did he. Love once said to me, I know a song, would you like to hear it? And laughter came from every brick in the street and from every pore in the sky. After a night of prayer, he changed my life when he sang, enjoy me. Enjoy me. Enjoy me. Some of you live your life wondering what command God has for you next. What's the next ministry that you can do? What's the next pedigree that you can achieve? What's the next degree you could get? Some of you are stuck in a schedule of you do the same thing every day. You go to the same job every day. And it's the same interaction you have with people every day. You go to the same school every day. And it's business as usual, business as usual, business as usual. And God is saying, are you enjoying me? Are you enjoying me? This will cause you to give God your best. If you're going on an adventure and you're doing something you've never done before, you're going to be giving your best. You're going to be giving the worship that God asked for because you can literally see his hand moving. And I'm asking the worship team to come back up and we're going to be taking communion and we're going to be worshiping. And 
I want you guys to understand that you are beloved. You are so beloved. And God loves you, and he, and it says, it says in Psalms that if he were to count the thoughts that he had towards you, it would be more vast than the amount of sand on the beach, right? You can't even count a handful of sand. I want you to imagine all of the shores of this entire world, God has more thoughts towards you than that. And so God's love is so vast and so incredible because he is constantly constantly thinking about you and different aspects of who you are. So in order for us to love God more and worship him more, we also need to explore different aspects of who he is. We need to explore different aspects of his character. And in doing this, we will enjoy him. Push yourself, go on an adventure. And sometimes that means literally Get in your car, go on an adventure. Do something fun with God. Uh, Do something with your family that you've never done before. Talk to somebody you've never talked to before. Read a book that you've always wanted to read, but you think, ah, I don't have the time for that. Do something new with God that you've never done before, but you've always wanted to do, and in doing so, you're not going to fall into the same sin that Israel did, which is, ah, yeah, we just give God what we give, you know? enjoy him. Amen. And we're going to take communion and we're going to enjoy him. We're going to remember the sacrifice that he made. We're going to remember this, just the profound sacrifice that he made so that we can live a life of newness and not monotony. Amen. Lord, we love you. God, man, I want to give you so much worship tonight. I want to give you so much reverence tonight. I want to give you what you deserve, Lord. And so, If it means, God, that we, if we've never raised our hands before, we should raise our hands. If it means we've never bowed down before in worship, we'll bow down. If it means we've never grabbed someone and prayed with them, we'll do that. Lord, in whatever way we can experience you in new ways, in whatever way we can enjoy you, Lord, in ways that we were once scared to, I pray that we do that tonight and as we walk out these doors throughout the week, we'd find new ways to enjoy you. Wouldn't be business as usual, but we'd see life as an adventure with you. Yeah. Constantly show us new things about you, Jesus. You are so good and so worthy of all the worship we have to offer. We love you, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's worship.